the number one rule is to trust your intuition. Welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host, and today I'm with special guest Marlene. Hi. Hi, everyone. Tiffany, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. Yes, I'm excited to have you. Thank you. Yes, you have quite a story to tell, and it's just amazing how well you have transformed. It's just, it's beautiful. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I can tell you it's, it took years of hard work to get to this place, but it was all worth it in the end. Yes, I think it always is. It's just hard allowing yourself to get there because we want it like yesterday. We don't want to work for it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We have that impatience, you know. Um, I'm going to therapy, but I'd like to get through this as fast as I can. So right. I, I agree with you. Mm. Can't rush it. Can't rush perfection. <laughs> True. I'll give you, I'll give the listeners a little bit of background about myself um, so that they understand when I talk to them about the story and what happened to me, if that's okay with you, Tiffany. Perfect. So I grew up in uh, South Africa. And I was born in a small town and I grew up on a farm with my family. And I come from a big family. So we, you know, I'm the youngest of six siblings. And, you know, we were all very close. And even to this day, we are all so, so close. We would have, you know, wonderful times together. I remember, you know, in summer, we would play outdoors. We would, you know, always be together having big meals. You know, I would have piggyback rides with my with my brothers and my sisters. So there was always lots of fun, you know. I would help my mom in the kitchen with baking. And, you know, my I remember my dad was the one that taught me how to ride a bicycle. And it was a hand-me-down bicycle from my older brother. And he didn't give up until I could ride that bicycle. So I came from an absolute loving family, a home that was always filled with love and good food. <laughs> Oh and, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, as a as a little girl, that was all I I knew and you know, I eventually grew up and now I am an author, I'm a podcast host. Um, but I wasn't always any of these things, you know. When I was a little girl, I had big dreams and I I thought to myself that all I want is to be a television presenter on the afternoon show, and I want to inspire people um, on the children's show. But my dad was saying, no, you are not going to set your sails for the big city and on the other side of the country. And so that didn't materialize, and I had to do something else. And I decided, you know, once I was finished with school, and I went to university to study law, not because I had, oh, I'm going to give my age away to Tiffany, but not because I had, you know, um, LA law syndrome. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I wanted to be filthy rich. But, you know, I studied law because I wanted to really be, I believed in justice and I wanted to have justice for others. And it was during that. my university, yeah. And so it was during my university years that 
my life just changed literally in a blink of an eye. You know, when you stand before your life as a young student and you're waiting for it to unfold because you think, where is this going to go next? And then everything changes. And, and that was really what happened to me. And so my story is really one of, you know, survival and uh, recovery and triumph. And so it was a hot summer's day and I was working a shift at a restaurant, which was um, close to my home. And I had finished the organization for the end of summer shifts. And I was, I could either stay and wait for the latest shift or I could go home. And so I decided the latter, I decided I was going to, going to go home and I was going to have a nice chill afternoon. And so my parents had just bought me a brand new car and I got into my car and I had the music turned up and I had, you know, the wind blowing in my hair and I was driving down this road because I was ready to chill. And as I was driving, I started to feel this calling that told me to turn around. And on the road that I was driving, there were many opportunities to turn around. I could go left, right, I could go back at any time. And that was really the my intuition that was raising the alarm that something was not right and that I had to go back. And I kept thinking, oh, I still needed to get something at the shop and I really should do that, but I'm not going to do it. And I powered through. And when I got home... It was definitely not that um, wonderful chill afternoon that was waiting for me. Because as I arrived home and I came into my apartment, I was not the only one that was entering the apartment. And I ran up the stairs, I put my bag down, and as I came out to the landing, someone grabbed me from behind and pressed something cold against my neck. And in that moment, Tiffany, I thought my mind is playing tricks on me, you know, how can my friend be here and be so silly because they love play, playing tricks on, 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 you know, us. And right. then I thought, but my friend will not be, here. how would my friend be here? It was the strangest thing. And then the voice started speaking and asking me, who's here? Start walking, you know, said the voice. And I didn't know what, what was against my neck. I didn't know in what level of danger I was in. And so I complied. And so it was a clearing of the apartment, the downstairs area. And as we were walking past the front door, I could see the key that I had just put down moments before. And I thought, if only I can grab this key and open the door and run away it would be, it would save me. But at the fear of not knowing whether, you know, I was going to have my throat slit, I didn't do it. And we started to make our way back to the upstairs area. And all I could think was, that was a, that was a chance that was lost. And as soon as we came to the upstairs area during this home invasion, the uh, beating just started and so I was beaten, I was raped, and I was eventually strangled and left for dead. Wow. So during that time, what felt like absolute hours, I think someone recently asked me, how long was all of this? I said, it felt like a lifetime. 
but you know it was the bigger part of the afternoon and during that time i kept thinking as i was fighting for my life and as i was fighting back that i wanted to love and i could not let my niece who um was staying there and you know when she comes home in the afternoon she runs up first thing to come and see me and say hello i really did not want her to find my cold corpse in you know a pool of blood and semen and so i remember that as sort of the absolute last thought that i had as i collapsed into what i thought would be my death and during that time i was in a place that was absolutely peaceful and calm and that was my saving grace and i can i can honestly say that in hindsight today um and that place actually became the cover of my book a ray mm-hmm. of light because i remember seeing all these beautiful lights uh yellow and white lights where i was and passers by that heard the scuffle called the police and there was a captain on the patrol not far from where i was and he came to the rescue and i remember hearing you know sounds coming up the stairs and all i could think in that moment was this person is coming back because my home was ransacked and lots of my uh, you know um belongings were stolen mm-hmm. and it was the police and it was the you know the paramedics and and while they were working on me the paramedics were working on me i remember looking up and seeing the most beautiful blue eyes that i've ever seen in my life and he was just asking me so many questions and in those moments what i now realize in hindsight it was my first opportunity to speak about what happened to me that day Absolutely. and it was very it was very important to talk about what happened that day and because i was a law student i just knew i had to say everything i was then transported to the hospital by the paramedics where i was met by a doctor who was the district surgeon at the government hospital and she was responsible for you know processing my body collecting the evidence that eventually would go to trial and and i remember lying there as i watched all of this happen and i heard a familiar voice outside that said three arrests have been made and they're here for processing my family had been notified and so my parents were on their way to the hospital my uh, my, my sub- some of my siblings were at the hospital with me already so three arrests had been made during the weeks that that followed um one of the one of the men arrested was you know simply at the wrong place at the wrong time and was arrested with these people the other two became accused number 1 and accused number 2 the one accused d- during the trial became a state's witness because he decided to testify um against accused number 1 and as part of that deal that was made he was set free because he was more the lookout for a different plan one that didn't include rape and attempted murder or murder which was the original plan 
I went through that process um, of, you know, getting that conviction. But I want to say that if you have ever fought for your life in any way, it's a fatigue that you just don't know. It's absolutely horrendous how depleted you are following something like that. Physically, emotionally, mentally, you're absolutely depleted. I guess at that stage, those initial days afterward, I um, was taken to a hospital and I was initially discharged from the first hospital, which was the public hospital, with antiretroviral drugs, which was my smaller trauma within my big trauma because the exposure there was, of course, um, HIV infection, um, STD infections, and unwanted pregnancy. And so my doctors gave me the medications for that. And I had to obviously get tested at a later stage for all of those to see whether or not I would test positive or negative. After that, I then was moved to a, a different hospital. But, you know, in those initial days, I merely tried to heal physically, which was all I could do. I was in such a state of high alerts at all times because I was so terrified and I was so scared that, you know, this was still going to happen. And so it became extremely difficult to sleep. It became very difficult because I was so emotionally numb because I was just in this, in this state of shock. And I was so fatigued, you know, I had constant intrusive thoughts about the event that would just constantly replay over and over in my mind. You know, I couldn't sleep and I, and I really couldn't be alone. And it was, it was a, a difficult place to be because you have to deal with yourself at that time. And, and being that scared and feeling that disconnected is such a conflict. So you have to ask for help. But at the same time, you also don't want anyone near. And so it was a very conflicting place to be. In the hospital, I had a team of doctors that worked with me, and that consisted of a general physician. I had an ear, nose, and throat specialist. I had an ophthalmologist uh, because of the particular hemorrhaging and the potential uh, tearing to the retina, the uh, esophagus, the damage to my esophagus, uh, an orthopedic surgeon for the broken bones, a neurologist because my head was slammed into the, the walls and the, the floor. And a psychologist because, you know, I needed to start processing what had happened to me almost immediately because the experience was so extremely traumatic for me. And, of course, a gynecologist that would monitor the developments of, of course, HIV, STD, and, of course, the internal damage. And so this was an amazing team that helped me tremendously. And I was hospitalized for just under two weeks. And... When I left the hospital, I had to go back home, but eventually I had to, you know, reintegrate into society. I had to go back to university and it was challenging because all I wanted to do at that point and time was die. For someone who fought that hard and wanted to live so badly, I could not understand that I just wanted to die. And so I remember speaking to my dad because we had the conversation about me going back to university. He had alerted all my lecturers because I had been off university for quite a number of months. 
And I was saying, but I just want to lie in the corner of the world and die. That's really what I want. And I remember my dad saying, you know, I know that that is what you want, but I promise you one day you will look back and you will understand this. There will be understanding for this because at the moment, only God knows why he brought this to us. And armed with my antidepressants and my medication for my, my PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder um, diagnosis, high anxiety, and my imbalance, chemical imbalance in my brain um, and the medications for that, I braved the world. And I think for many people, it was a relief because if we can reintegrate into our old routines, it me- must mean that we are healing which for me going through that was was not really necessarily the case. And so, you know, the impact of that event was so traumatic, but it, it impacted me in a way that was very direct. And, you know, I really had trouble going back to university. I had trouble concentrating. I had trouble with the schoolwork. I was terrified all the time. I, w- I couldn't be alone. I would come home and sit down and check every five minutes, every, everywhere, behind the door, under the bed, you know, the windows, the doors, go outside, come inside. And so it was a very, um, it was a place where I felt like on high alert all the time. And it was so hard because... There are people around us in this world. They don't understand what's wrong with this person. Why can't they sit still? Why do they need to constantly check? Why do they need to do this, that, and the other? So it becomes hard because you almost have to keep it to yourself, right? Right. And so, and so you know, to help me with all of that and, and my anger that I had, I remember being so angry because I felt that this was so unjust, uh, I was so angry at at God, you know, for letting this happen. I was, I was angry at people who were just carrying on with their lives, you know. And I remember that I just let all of that anger within me bowl to a place of absolute just resentment. And it was such a resentment that I didn't even know that I had because I just left it unprocessed. And so... In talk therapy, I would, which was one of the first interventions that started in the hospital, I would definitely work with my psychologist and, you know, we would work on the things that were giving me all of those troubles and how I could cope best with the scenario. But always, if we had to go back to the, the event, the instigating event that occurred, that was always extremely hard for me to do because... I didn't want to relive it because at that stage and those early days, it was not a memory. I was reliving every time I was going to that place. And so, you know, I, I had this internal resistance and, you know, in my mind's eye, it, 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 it looked like a corridor that had this door that I had shut. And every time I was prompted in any way to go down that corridor, I would just, you know, not go that way or I would say a lot of information, but really not give a lot of detail. And so I had this internal, you know, unwillingness to a certain extent, even though I was doing the work on all of the other things. And we managed to, over a period of time, work through that, learn and teach my body not to be afraid and also show my body that it's okay. And so, you know, the constant checking and being on high alert and 
um, the constant fear and sleepless nights, that was all changed over time because I had shown my body that this was now a safe space, right? Because my body was associating my home as a place of that was unsafe. Right. And so it was about showing my body that a home can be safe. Uh, one of the first things that I want to say that I, I probably, you know, really took away from, you know, talking about the experience. And that that was when I was with, you know, the, the doctors. And then I had a second opportunity to talk about this with uh, the district surgeon who also had lots of questions about what happened as she was processing my body. For me, I needed to understand why this was so bad for me. And if I was speaking about this outside of talk therapy, why it was so bad for someone else. And, you know, I realized very soon that, you know, sharing this with my parents or my siblings, sharing this with my best friends, sharing this with just, you know, friends in general, it left them traumatized because they would come back to me and apologize and say, you know, Marlene, I'm so sorry, but I had to tell my mom. I'm so sorry. I had to tell my husband. I'm so sorry. I had to. And I thought, you know, they are having a second wave of the trauma that I have experienced because, and I wanted to understand why that is. And I just started doing so much research and I found that there is this notion of a shattered worldview. And once I learned that, I, it just clicked for me, you know, coming from a Christian home, from a big family. My home was always a place of love and joy. For me, the world was always a benevolent place and not a malevolent place. You know, in from this perspective, I obviously underestimated that something like this and this brutal act could ever happen to me. And, you know, this was something that I only saw in the newspaper. I only saw it on television. It wasn't something that was within my environment. We didn't know anybody that this had happened to. And I realized it was the same for my friends. When I was sharing my experience, they were traumatized because their worldview became shattered. As far as the meaningfulness of the world, I wanted to study law because I believed in justice. But here I found myself in a world that was so unfamiliar to me because I always believed that my world had order, my world was just, you know, my world was logical. But here I was in a world that didn't even make sense to me. And that was really a difficult adjustment for me because things were not the way that I had experienced it up until that point in my life. My inner self-worth that, you know, told me and still tells me to this day that I am a good, decent person deserving of good things in the world, it all just was shattered. There was I could have no, <laughs> There was just absolutely no connection to any of it. And, you know, I, I just became disconnected, if we think about it in a practical way, from the people around me, the students around me, the family members around me, I just started to disconnect from the world. And it became a very lonely place. And so, you know, I, I had to work through all of that. When, when we think of like healing, we think of talk therapy, we think of all of these medical and psychological interventions that's out there that I went through in my recovery. 
I always talk about it in the, in the sense of, you know, a, a mind-body connection. And, and that's how we heal if we can connect the body and the mind. But what I found was that I became desperate to control. Mm. I had this need for it. And when it came to any experiences in the bedroom, I needed to be in control. And I needed to say what happened. I wanted the power. I didn't want this to happen again. Because the power was taken from you. Yes, exactly. Right, Tiffany, because my power was completely taken away. And so, and so for, for a while, that was what I chased. And, and so the, the, the healing was not only a, a, you know, a mental and, a, and, and just a body-mind connection, but it became a very much a physical connection or a physical healing point because the promiscuity that I had at that time was something that needed to be healed. And one day I went to see my, my doctor and he said to me, you need to see a sexologist because your, your problem that we are experiencing here today is not a problem that is only physical. It's in your mind, but you need to make the physical connection and understand it logically. And he referred me to a sexologist, which for me was amazing because you know, the most value that I took from that was I, you know, when you experience something like that as the aftermath of a sexual violence, you don't understand it. You know, for some people, they take naked selfies and send it around to everyone. Other people um, have risky sexual behavior, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's different for, for everybody. But we don't, but I didn't understand it because that was just not how I was raised and it wasn't part of my behavior. And so when I started seeing my, my, my sexologist, one of the, the things that I took away from my time with her was that she gave me the reassurance that my promiscuity was not as a result of, you know, something that I had done wrong and that I didn't have to feel shame about it. You know, she reassured me that, Many patients that she speaks to who have experienced sexual violence and trauma have similar stories to share. And that, you know, this wasn't unique only to me and that there was nothing wrong with me. And, you know, this was a natural side effect of sexual violence. And, you know, I really learned to reclaim my sexuality with her. I learned through the combination of, you know, physical practices as well as the mental work that I had to do with her to let go of the fear that was stuck in my body and understand and let pleasure into my into my into my existence because that wasn't something that I could experience and I think that you know I learned with her help really how to communicate and find that sexual power as opposed to having this desperate need for control but really you know when it comes to sexual power it's tricky because sometimes you know we're in a situation where we think okay this is something that I want to do but then it's it's maybe not something that you envisaged in the same way and so you know it might be that the other person envisaged something different 
And so sexual power is tricky, but she taught me how to navigate that and how to have that and how to be able to stand firm within myself. I think that if I can say some of the lessons that I've learned, like just on the healing journey and just over the last 25 years is that bad things can literally happen to anyone. It's just a fact of life. It's never easy. These instigating events, they don't choose, you know, based on demographics or race or the color of your eyes or anything like that. It just happens and it can happen to to anyone. And And it seems like an insurmountable task when it does happen. But I can tell you that there is a way to get through this. There definitely is. You know, one of the things that I've learned that stays with me to this day on my healing path from this horror event is that we always have the power of choice. And for me, I chose for a very long time to stay with my stay with my trauma. Peter A. Levin, and um, I refer to him in my book, Peter A. Levin states that trauma is a fact of life. It does not, however, have to be a life sentence. And honestly, for the very long time, I made my trauma my life sentence. Because even though I was doing a lot of the work, I chose to stay with the darker emotions rather than surrender to some of the more positive emotions that could have accelerated the healing. And during that time, it was it was difficult because I didn't even understand it myself. And even though I was doing all of this work just to try to cope, I, at the same time, you know, I was building this wonderful life, but I was trying to cope quietly. I had this internal resistance. I stayed with that trauma and and I made that journey to, to that healing more difficult than it should have been, you know, but, but I think it's also it's, it's, it was something that I had to experience in order to get there. But in hindsight, I can say that now, you know. Right. Um, like, I always think about how I felt about medication when I first received the medication. And, you know, in the beginning, I didn't want the medication until I realized I needed the medication because it was incredibly overwhelming. And I had to take the medication that was prescribed to me by the doctors. And that there was nothing wrong with taking medication in order to cope, in order to help you survive uh, an experience of uh, that magnitude or, or any other experience. And so for me, medication had a place in my life. And believe me, I tried several times to wean myself off it. And it didn't work out so well for me. And, uh, you know, I'd had to get, have to get back on it. And I mean, today I, I know that if I uh, you know, am experiencing high levels of anxiety, which I still do to this day, there is medication and it's something that can help me to better cope and help me feel better and help me get through whatever it is that's causing that for me in my, in my present life, you know, and in, in just in general, in daily life. I also, you know, I wanted to say that People always say to me, you know, when I share the story, but you're so confident, like, you know, because I, I was, I, I mean, I built a life that was 
wonderful. You know, I was a corporate executive. I was uh, married. You know, I traveled. I, you know, was always a social butterfly. I until I wasn't. And so from the outside, it, it really did. It seemed that way. But, you know, I really struggled with that self-loathing and that low self-worth all the time. And that was a, a big achievement for me when I could finally recognize that and make that change to say, no, my life actually has worth. I have worth in this life. I am not just something that this happened to and is now discarded as broken part of society's human somewhere in the corner of the world. I'm not. I am a force to be reckoned with. And I am somebody who had big dreams as a little girl. And I still have big dreams. And I still believe like that little girl that I can do anything and I can go anywhere and I can be anything that I want to. My intuition was always calling to me saying, you're wasting your life, you're wasting your life. And I would hear that calling constantly. And when I really reconnected to who I truly am, to that inner knowing, I found exactly that same girl, that same intuition. I found that same knowing that told me not to do, not to turn around. I found exactly that. And I knew that that was, that was what I was meant to be. You know, that was where my guidance in this world comes from. I learned the hard way that all my trust should go to listening to my intuition because it is never wrong. <laughs> so if that's something I, I can leave your, your listeners with, trust your guts. It's never, ever, ever wrong. Something doesn't feel right. Listen. I agree with that, like everything. But I also agree with everything happens for a reason. So you kind of get torn between that because now this is what made you who you are today. And you're yeah. a better version of you. Yeah, yeah. And I will say that, I mean, we say a better version of it. But I, 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 I like to look at it that... I am no longer staying with my trauma. Like I have, I've, I've reached a point in my life where I can transmute my trauma into something different. And all of these things that I've been speaking about, they still exist within me and they're still there. The difference now is that I can look at that pain. I can see my pain and I can say, this is not a pain that informs all the decisions that I make. Resentment was something, and, and, and not just resentment, deep-seated resentment as a direct result of that anger that I felt at the injustice of all of this was something that ruled my life. And, you know, I can now say, well, in hindsight, that most of my decisions I made from that place of resentment and it showed up as part of my personality at work people would say mm, don't go to our office today no she's just like that no i'll ask her don't you go in there that wasn't part of my personality that was deep-seated resentment as a direct result of what i experienced as extremely traumatic and once i recognized 
that that was what was driving all my decisions, I had to figure out a way to stop that. And I found the solution. The solution for it in my life was forgiveness. I had to, I had to get to a, a place of absolute humility to say, I need help. God, I know this happened, but I can't carry this on my own. And I'm going to hand this over to you. For the first time in my life, I understand this. And I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to surrender to whatever it is. And I had to really look at the villains in my life as human beings, as people. Because that day, not only my life was, you know, ruined in the most vile way, but there were other lives too. The lives of my family, the lives of the perpetrators, the lives of the perpetrators' families. So many people had their lives changed that day. The trajectory changed completely. You know, uh, a mother became instantly a single mother, a single parent. A child grew up without a father. Family rifts started. You know, all of these things, everyone is human. And as much as that was the instigating event that put my life on its trajectory, those were the instigating events that put their lives on that trajectory that they go. And I don't know what that looks like, but I had to see everyone, all the villains and everybody else as human. And that was how I could really reach that place of humility to find it within myself, to forgive myself for really dragging this with me for so many years and really keeping it alive by staying with the trauma. And so once I did that, and once I, you know, through a ritual that I did, uh, it was actually um, at a, um, a self-love ceremony, I did this ritual where I wrote these letters. And in these letters, you know, I really lay down everything. And then later the day, we burned all of these letters. I could feel how all of it was just lifting off of me. Like I started to feel lighter. All of the years that I was carrying all of this with me, I literally could physically feel lighter. And from there, it became easier because I was no longer angry at God. So it was easy for me to surrender. It was easy for me to listen to my intuition. It was easy for me to connect. It was easier for me to um, really find my messages within the, the stillness, you know. And uh, life just became better. You know, when you come face to face with your mortality in this way, and for me, it happened again, you know, in a later stage in my life, I was diagnosed with, with cancer and I am in remission um, now for four years. Um, so when you constantly come, you know, face to face with your mortality in this way, like I did, you, you learn that time is incredibly, incredibly valuable. And if you don't use time wisely, it will slip through your fingers. And time is the only thing that you can never, ever get back. And so if you waste it, you just run out. That's all that happens. We are, we come into this life with the, you know, the, the breath of, of, of God and it ignites who we are, our soul, you know, not the, and the, the allocations of whatever our breaths are, 
it's allocated. And, and when that runs out, there's, doesn't matter what anybody says, there's nothing that you can do about it, right? It's finished. And so, you know, I, I really learned to treasure time and, and to live my life, you know, from this place of, well, let me put it to you this way. If the angel of death had to come to me tomorrow and say, this is it, it's time to go. I want to know that I've lived my life in a way that I can say, that's fine. I'm ready. Instead of trying to renegotiate, hang on. I haven't spoken to this person for a while and I actually I'm still mad at this one and ooh I, I I you know I still have this issue with my mom and you know I no and so I really try to now live my life you know um in a way that when that day comes and you know that final point of departure it's one that I can take with ease knowing that I've lived a life of meaning and purpose and that I've made the best of that meaning and purpose for my life, given the circumstances that I was handed in this lifetime. You know, I, I, I'm always so grateful. And I can only say this now, with years in between the instigating event and where I am now, I can say that gratitude for me, it's one of the most transformative virtues in, in, in the world. It teaches me, and even to this day, it teaches me that to have gratitude allows me to be content with what I have. And even if there are days when, when things seem so unfair or the tension is so much or I feel like I want to break under my circumstances or I wake up and I think, oh my gosh, my eyeballs are going to burst in my head because there's just so much stress. If I start to look at the things that I have, it makes all the difference because I have to look at the things that I have in order to, to, to not see the things that I don't have. And when, when I started to practice that, it really alleviated so much of the anguish that I used to live with constantly. And so for me, that, that was a big lesson that I take from this experience. And I can now say that this event, even though it was rape and attempted murder as an instigating event, it's something that I can see how now it happened for me, you know, rather just happening to me. And I will always have it as part of my experience. It will always be there as part of my past but I am no longer a hostage to any of it. And I, I think that, you know, one last thing that, that, I, that I think was very important for me, and it actually came after my uh, cancer diagnosis, was healing and community. When I, when I was invited to speak at support groups, I was sharing my journey with others that had similar journeys than mine. And if we speak to somebody that can really understand you in a way like another survivor, in a way that intrinsically only the two of you at that point in time can understand, it makes all the difference. And for me, that was one of my massive breakthroughs that happened 
And it didn't happen in my talk therapy with my psychologist. It happened outside with a survivor. And that was okay. And I remember going back to my psychologist saying, what happened to me? This is... um, this is something that I'm not, I don't understand, but it's just lodged something in me and I can feel there's a transformation. Something is changing. And so the breakthroughs, they don't necessarily have to come from specific medical or psychological interventions, but they can also come from just talking to other survivors, opening up about your story, sharing in a group setting with, you know, others who have experienced something similar. That was something that helped me tremendously in both uh, overcoming uh, the experience of rape and uh, attempted murder, as well as the cancer diagnosis. And so I can say that it's been quite a journey. And, um, you know, I, yeah, I don't know if you have any questions. (laughs) Oh, I have a few. (laughs) So was this a robbery gone wrong? Did you come home and they were already going through the house? Or do you think they were there for you and then did that afterwards? No, this was a robbery gone wrong. So the, 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 the initial plan was break, it, break in and theft. Okay, and you didn't know them? No, no. no. How much time did he get? He is serving two life sentences and um, an extra 15 years for the breaking and the theft. Good. No chance of parole. Perfect. (laughs) We don't need people like that walking amongst us. No, definitely not. You know, and, uh, and the fact that I talk about forgiveness doesn't mean that I think that you know, that's excusable in any way, because it it just isn't. And society has decided what was just. And and I agree, I stand by the justice system and their verdict and their sentencing. No, this time they got it right. A lot of times they do not get it right. That's right. Very unfortunate. Because, I mean, when you look at the statistics, when they get out, most of them are going to repeat because that's what they know. Yeah. Yeah. So you said you're promiscuous side, but that is so common because a lot of children who are either molested or raped, a lot of them become prostitutes. So like a lot, a very large majority of the prostitutes have gone through that at some time in their childhood. So it makes sense because you almost feel like that was taken from you. It's your choice. It's your, your power. And that, I don't know. I don't want to say like, I don't want to think like you're disconnected in that way, but you kind of are, if if that makes any sense. Like you don't really have a feeling towards that anymore because it was taken from you. It was taken, yes. And I refer in my book to a study that was done that actually showed that um, survivors of sexual violence and rape reported an increase in sexual activity post the trauma. Yeah. So it definitely is something that, that happens. It's something that we don't understand. I was lucky enough to have the intervention. My gynecologist, you know, he was the one that really noticed 
this and the behavior. Uh, and he was the one that referred me. So I was really lucky in that way that I had the opportunity to work with a sexologist that could teach me all of that, the physical aspects, the mental aspects of, of that healing journey. Otherwise, you know, for most people, they either have to figure it out for themselves, they have to write books. Some people that I've, I've spoken to, um, even on my podcast, have said, you know, they, they've used meditation and, you know, other sort of self-love interventions, other modalities to help them understand and make sense of it. And, and I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's also not that we only go off and is promiscuous, but there's also this other part of BDSM where that is the inclination that it, it is in a controlled environment because sometimes, you know, there is a need for something else like a spanking or a slap or humiliation. A master. Know? And so that is all normal as far as I understand it side effects of, you know, sexual uh, a trauma. And so, you know, in that case, there are groups and settings where you can go to, to seek that healing in a controlled, safe environment. I guess, you know, for some, some scholars would argue that it's a re-traumatization, perhaps even of the individual, but perhaps it, it, it's, it's not and it helps with the healing process. So, yeah. I mean, everybody's going to heal differently. It's a lifelong journey. It's, you know, it's not a one size fits all kind of thing. So everyone has to find what works for them. But I think living in gratitude, like you said, and actually facing your fears and learning how to deal with it, it really, it empowers you and it just makes you stand more tall. And it, you know, when you can be thankful for what you do have, you kind of just let the stress of everything else kind of go away. And it's, it's a relief. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it, it, it definitely is for sure. I mean, just being thankful for the smallest things. I, 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 I make it part of my devotion in the morning that, you know, when I do my devotion, that I do express my gratitude even if things aren't going my way, I still say thank you for the things that's going, that's going my way. Right. And it, it helps me through that day. And that's okay. Because, you know, I, during my healing, there was a point where I had to heal one nanosecond at a time. It wasn't one day at a time. It wasn't one hour at a time. It was literally going from one nanosecond, wiping the tears, and going into the next nanosecond and taking a breath. We all heal differently, but gratitude definitely makes a huge difference. I, I think so. And I'm going to keep believing so because <laughs> I see the difference in my own life from using it. So I think mm -hmm. it's, it's an amazing thing and everyone should try it. Yeah. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say that in those initial days following the incident and the experience that I, I would say that this was something that I felt, you know, that there was absolutely no gratitude at that point. I can say this now, 
decades later. But in those initial years of recovery, this was not something that existed at all. Right. I feel like we've grown as a society so much more to now realize what is happening to the mind and the body. If you would have gone back to like the 80s and the 90s, now I'm showing my age, you know, it would, it was completely different. People were scared to ask for help. People were scared to admit that they needed help. And it's about time we broke that stigma because it's okay to not be okay. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And in my book, I, I talk about my mom and how she was going through a really difficult time. And because I knew what talk therapy had done for me, I offered talk therapy to her, but I was met with a resistance, you know, and she said, therapy is for crazy people. And I, 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 I you know, I, when she said that, I realized that her generation did not necessarily seek help outside the home. You had to find the help, you know, within your environment. And that's how, you know, the emotions were processed. It was either processed with a grandma or grandpa, or aunt, or uncle, and a cousin. But you had to find it closer to home. It wasn't necessarily acceptable for it to be outside of the home. Some people grew up with the notion or idea from their parents that what happens in this house stays in this house. And so there isn't even a chance to go to a religious leader at church or at synagogue or to say there there's a problem. Can you help me? Because they just weren't allowed outside of the home. I think that in our society, um, that has changed to some extent. I think people are much more vocal. I think that uh, COVID-19 has also helped a lot when it comes to speaking about mental health, which is something that always was very stigmatized. Speaking about medication, which was also something heavily stigmatized. Speaking about trauma, also very highly stigmatized. And, um, and so there's definitely a shift that I have seen towards a more open, all-embracing approach to healing. That's what we need. There's so many people that are going through the same things and everyone's like hiding in their little corners. No, this is when we come together and we help each other. We be each other's cheerleaders. And, you know, it's, that's what we need in this life. We just, we need people who want to lift others up and stop putting people down. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I always, I say that, you know, we have that ray of light within us and that is our inner knowing that will tell us, but there are days when we can't find that when we are really in the clutches of despair, we cannot see our little light, but there's always someone else that will shine their light for you. And even if it's just somebody that comes alongside you, holds your hand, if it's a smile from a stranger, there's always someone that will shine their light for you. You just have to be open to receive it. Absolutely. Open-minded is, it will bring so much things to you that you had no clue 
that were even available to you. Yeah. Yeah. So people find your book if they wanted to buy it. It is called Ray of Light. And is it on Amazon? Is it where you got it? So my book Ray of Light is available on Amazon uh, dot com and uh, also on takealot.com in South Africa, but Amazon uh, worldwide. Yeah. And your podcast. Do you want me to talk about the book and the podcast? Yeah, go ahead, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you can let everyone know where they can find you. So my book, Ray of Light, you know, I was inspired really to write this book after I spent time at the support groups and really just talking to others. And I was only sharing a small portion of my story that was unrelated to cancer. And I realized that I impacted people's lives, not only that of the cancer survivors or the cancer patients, because everyone is in a different stage who's in a support group. Some are recently diagnosed, some are advanced, some are in admission, some are going through treatments. But they, I was also inspiring the allies, the family members that really joined them to support them in this process that they were going through. And in the feedback, I would get people say, Marlene, you know, I'm going through a very acrimonious divorce and I'm in a custody battle but your words really resonated with me. It gave me a different perspective. I've never had cancer, but thank you so much. And so I, um, I would get the email from the social worker to say the next day, here are all the questions from some of the members. You know, what oil is in your burner? What books did you read? What did you do? And so I would type up these emails and send it, and then they would just burst it to the members. And I thought there has to be a better way to do this. And I decided on a platform. And as a child, my dad uh, always used to enter uh, me in beauty pageants. And so I was quite accustomed to being behind a microphone and, you know, on a stage publicly speaking and answering questions. And so I thought, wow, I did this when I was, you know, 11, 12 years old. Why not a podcast? That's something that's behind a microphone. And um, and so I started my podcast, Surviving Trauma, Stories of Hope. And I started sharing my own journey. And on the podcast, I do exactly that. I share the stories of incredible human beings that have really overcome their circumstances and have so much value to give to this world. Uh, Someone asked me recently, Marlene, are you not depressed doing this podcast and talking to all these? And I said, no, because I come out of my podcast speaking to the most amazing people and I feel rejuvenated. I feel inspired. I feel ready to take on my life and where I am in my life. It's the best thing for me. So no, I definitely don't feel that. And so once the podcast was up and running, I thought, how can I get this message out even more, even further, connect with more people? And that led me then to write my book, which is Ray of Light. And so the cover of my book is what I mentioned to you earlier. That is that, that was the place that kept me safe, the place that kept me safe from harm, the place that was peaceful, and the place that really let me know that 
we are not alone makes me think of Psalm 91, Psalm 91 verse 11 that says, God says, I will send my angels to protect you wherever you may go. And when I think of this cover and I think of, you know, what it means to me, I always, I'm always reminded of that uh, scripture because in that moment, I was not alone. I, as much as I was fighting there, I had the whole spirit world with me. I do believe that. Oh, you had a guardian angel for sure. Yeah. And they knew exactly when my body had to present as dead and I had to go to this place in order to survive. And, uh, and I'm, I'm sort of incredibly grateful. Yeah. So my links on Instagram and Facebook is my centered life. And my website is also mycenteredlife.com because I believe that if we are living our centered life, if we are balanced, if we are in flow, if we are connected to our inner knowing, our intuition, then we can interact with our life in a more meaningful way. We can also live life from a place of empowerment rather than disempowerment. And so my centered life is really that place of empowerment for me. Um, if any of your listeners are interested, I have curated on the resources page a lovely relaxing meditation for the evening and some journal prompts for the morning. And say, oh, they are welcome to uh, go ahead and download them that for themselves. And um, my podcasts are also available on all the major directories. And you can find me on LinkedIn, Marlene McConnell. And I'll add some links in the bio for there. So if anyone's interested, they can just click on the link and they'll be sent right to you. Oh, <laughs> you're an angel, Tiffany. I Thank love it. You. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, no. I, you know, I'm so sorry that this had happened to you. But when you think about it, when you were young, you wanted to be on TV and you wanted to do all that. And now you are. <laughs> it's just a different way. It's true. <laughs> it's true. And, and I'm so grateful again for this opportunity just to be here with you on Crime Over Cocktail. I love the name. Thank you. Um, Crime Over Cocktails. Yes. Very sassy. I love it. And yes, and so I have truly come full circle. That's amazing. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. I hope that your listeners can take some value from everything that I've shared here today. And that I hope that it can help them in a positive way in, in their lives. Oh, for sure. I think absolutely. I think there's a lot of people who can identify with your story and hopefully this will set them on the path of self-discovery and healing. That would make my heart happy. Really. Truly, it would make my heart happy. I know. I just want more healed people in this life. I know we're a healing obsessed society, but I know what the difference it he, true healing makes. And if, if more people can achieve that authentically in their lives, I mean, we will have better workplaces, better employees, better society, better governments, better ministers, you know? Absolutely. I'm, actually, I'm in the middle of starting a nonprofit, and it's called The Crime Connection. And yeah. what that's 
going to hopefully do is help people deal with trauma way earlier in life to help so we have a better society. If everyone could heal themselves at a younger age, learn how to deal with their anger, their depression, or whatever it is that you're going through, think of how better of a world this could be. It would certainly make a huge difference. Absolutely. And I think I think having that awareness is the key, you know? Mm-hmm. People need to have the awareness to be able to understand when there's a feeling that is pushing up. For example, I'm feeling a bit frustrated in this moment, and I might soon experience the emotion of anger and you know, if I leave this, then I'll eventually resent you. And so I think it's important that, you know, they they also have this awareness and at the same time, the vocabulary to be able to articulate it because, and, and, and I still learn, Tiffany, every day. And I find that the more I speak to my guests, I speak to, you know, guests from very different, many different backgrounds, psychoanalysts, psychologists, medical doctors, um, survivors, um, activists. I learn every single day from all of them. And sometimes when I hear them speak, they articulate something that perhaps I had missed within myself. And I say, aha, there it is. That's the name of it. Have you ever found that? Almost every episode and even something you said made me think, oh, I never thought of that avenue and about sexology. That, yeah. that should be something that everybody gets because it brings you back. I was like, oh, <laughs> light bulb. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And even if I speak to, you know, survivors of sexual trauma, it's very few people that ever worked with a psychologist or a sexologist. And they would always say to me, Marlene, I wish that I had known, you know, because they weren't made aware. They just weren't made aware of it. And, and that was life changing and transform transformational for me. And so it really is. And I, you know, there's another interesting aspect to that which is you have to speak about obviously your experience in the bedroom and what that will look like and having that sexual power and understanding the sexual safety because that's what we crave and really understanding sexual pleasure for yourself. But also your consent, the internal consent, that internal barrier of consent, of limitation, that we have within ourselves that somehow, if unhealed, is connected to the instigating event. I'll give you a practical example. If you move a, an experience, an encounter, from one position to the other position, one of those positions might be a rape position. Now, that in itself might be triggering and take you back to the instigating event, but it also speaks to what, how much have you healed? Where are your own barriers? And what level of consent do you give yourself to participate 
in that. And, you know, these things are all addressed with a sexologist. I mean, we spoke about, in our initial sessions with a sexologist, we spoke about sexual history, partners, sexual preferences, sex toys, how, how we communicate, what was comfortable, what was not, whether or not there was previous STD, um, whether there were pre previous pregnancies, whether there were abortions. All of this was covered sort of within, you know, the first meeting that I had with my sexologist. And so it was very in-depth. And even though it, it was very detailed, you know, it, it really just felt like a conversation that I was having with her and remembering all of these things and answering them. And over time, of course, we, we worked. And it was important that we had that plan. And it was important that I committed to that plan and that I was doing the physical homework at home in order to help myself and to make the plan work, you know? Right. So I did that. And so now I can, I can morph from the one to the other and fully experience that sexual pleasure when it comes to the bedroom. And that's important. <laughs> so. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we want that. <laughs> Tiffany, we want pleasure in the bedroom. <laughs> it's not just a man thing. <laughs> no, no. We know what we want. As women, we, we definitely know what we want. Got that right. <laughs> Well, is there anything else you wanted to share? I am so help, like thankful that you came on. Oh, I loved having you. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I'm so thankful for Aixa putting us in contact. I'm so grateful for her. All right, you guys, make sure that you follow her on your social medias or her podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. And you're listening on something. So while you're there, either like, follow, subscribe, leave a review, do all those things. I'm not sure if a platform does all those things, but if they did, I'd fucking love you. A lot of perks will be soon coming to crimeovercocktails.com. I have some things in the works. All right, we'll talk crime another time. Bye.